turn to the Word of God, to the Gospel according to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And I'll begin reading at verse 35 and read to the end of the chapter. Though the sermon will focus on one text this evening, verse 45, which as we will see is a hinge text in this passage. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking? Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Thus far the reading of God's Word. I'm sure you've all had the experience in some way or other of liking things at first and then later regretting that you ever met it. Perhaps you've been in looking for a mattress. And so you go to Sleep Country Canada, you spend 5, 10, 15 minutes laying on various mattresses, and you finally make your choice. A week later, they deliver it to your home, and the first night you think, man, am I ever glad I got this new mattress. But as time goes on, you're less and less pleased with it. It seems to become harder and harder. 
You seem to wake up each morning more and more sore, and you feel restless throughout the night. That is, familiarity has bred disfavor. The longer you know it, the less you like it. But that's not the way it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the way it is with some things. That's the way it is with some people. But it is never the way with the Lord Jesus Christ. The more you know the Lord Jesus, the longer you are acquainted with Him, the more you come to grasp who He is and what He has done, the more you will love the Savior. In fact, one of the reasons for our spiritual immaturity and weakness is that we don't spend the time and the energy giving the best of our time and the best of our energies to knowing Him. And so with little knowledge of Him, we have little love for Him and little effectiveness in our service to Him. So this evening I thought, also in light of the celebration of the Lord's Supper on this day, that we would focus our attention on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ from this most memorable text in Mark 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It is, in fact, so short and so memorable that all of you could commit it to memory. And it'd be something that you could put under your tongue like a Scottish mint and suck on it all day long and be fed and refreshed as you meditate on who the Lord Jesus Christ is as the Savior of sinners. The first thing I want to note with you is the exalted status and the divine dignity that is accorded to the Lord Jesus. Because when the Lord Jesus speaks about the Son of Man, you can believe that He's actually speaking about Himself. In fact, Jesus is the one upon whose lips the designation Son of Man is most often found in the New Testament by an overwhelming majority. And this is Jesus' favorite self-designation. When He wants to speak about Himself, He speaks about the Son of Man. Now, what is the significance of that title? Because it is a title. Well, I think it has a twofold significance that helps us have a window into who the Lord Jesus is. First of all, I think it's as simple as this, that it highlights the humanity of our Lord Jesus. If you read through, for instance, uh, the prophecy of Ezekiel, you'll see that Ezekiel the prophet, a, a mere man like you and me, that Ezekiel the prophet was often addressed by God as son of man. And the Lord said, son of man, say to the house of Israel this and that and the next thing. So it highlights the humanity of Jesus, that he was truly man, that he shared the DNA of his virgin mother Mary, that he traveled through the birth canal into this world like most babies do, that he needed to be nursed and his nappy or diaper needed to be changed, and he needed to be fed, and he grew and developed just like we grow and develop, not only intellectually but also in wisdom and in stature, that he was tired, that he experienced weariness and hunger and thirst. He was as man as you and I are humans, though he was without sin. And so the Son of Man is a title highlighting his humanity, 
that our Savior was truly man. But it's not just that. It's also a messianic title. In fact, if you go back to Mark chapter, or sorry, uh, to Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament, you'll see this title referred to or referring to someone who is a cloud rider. Now, you, you know the Psalms well enough to know that the cloud rider is God himself. He's the only one who can ride the clouds. And here in Daniel chapter 7, we are given a recounting of a vision that Daniel the prophet saw. And this is what he saw. He saw this man, or sorry, he saw this ancient of days sitting on a throne. And then he saw someone riding on the clouds. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a, and here's the title, son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So God the Son rides the clouds comes into the presence of the Ancient of Days, God who is seated on the throne in majesty and glory. And then we read that the Ancient of Days gave to the Son of Man dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." And so the Son of Man is invested with this exalted status, with this divine dignity. He is a man, but He is also divine. He's the great God-man to whom all worship and honor belongs. You know, the Lord is jealous for His own glory. He will not share His glory with anyone else. But here in Daniel 7 in this vision, the Ancient of Days affords the Son of Man dominion and glory and kingdom so that all would worship and serve Him. So the title Son of Man is a reference to the humanity of our Lord Jesus, but also to the divinity of the second person of the Trinity, that the man who walked the earth, the baby who was born into the world, the man who walked on the earth was none other than the second person of the Trinity. He is the God-man. He is a divine human person. The Son of Man is a reference to our Lord Jesus' exalted status and divine dignity. Then notice what uh, the Lord Jesus says about the Son of Man in Mark 10, verse 45. The Son of Man came... Now, this is, in the first place, uh, again, a, a highlighting of his heavenly status. It's spoken from the perspective on earth. Here we are on earth, and this Son of Man came to earth. So it highlights his heavenly status, that he is from above, that he is very God of very God. And again, as you read through the Gospels, Keep an ear open for the number of times that Jesus speaks about Himself coming into this world. The Son of Man came to seek and to save those who were lost. Jesus came not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. He came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Jesus came uh, to bring blessing 
to call sinners to repentance. It's all over the Scriptures, speaking about how God the Son came into this world to carry out His mission. But it also speaks about the manner of coming. When we think of Jesus coming to this world, we often think of Jesus being sent into this world. And that is entirely true, that in the eternal counsels of the the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit before the foundations of the world as they scheme together to bring salvation to humanity, it was God the Father who appointed the Son, Jesus, to go into this world and to carry out the work of redemption. And so we read, for instance, in John 3, verse 16, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. This is something the Father is doing. He is giving His Son. And then it says in verse 17 of John 3, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but He sent His Son into the world in order that the world might be saved through Him. So you can think about the entrance of Christ into this world from the perspective of God the Father sending the Son into this world. But here, Jesus highlights not that He was sent into this world, but that He Himself came into this world. There's no coercion that just because He was appointed doesn't mean that that was the only reason that He came into the world. But He wanted to come. It was his own desire to come. He loved the world. The Father loved the world and gave the Son. But the Son loved the world and gave himself. He came into this world of his own accord. No one forced him to come. He was appointed, but it was an appointment that he gladly embraced. And he came into the world. Now you can imagine how refreshing this is for us. Imagine, for instance, as an illustration, you are in the hospital sick, and an elder comes and visits you, and at the end of the visit, you say to your elder, well, thank you very much for visiting me. That was so refreshing. Now, what's the elder supposed to say at that point? Well, he could say this, well, it's my job. (laughs) That's what I'm called to do. Where else do you expect me to be? You're in the hospital, I'm an elder, so elders visit people in the hospital. That's good. He could respond that way, and it would be accurate, because that is the calling of the elders, to visit with the sick and the needy. But wouldn't a better answer be, why? There's no other place I'd rather be right now than than right here with you. I'm so delighted that I could share this time with you, and I'm thankful that it was such a blessing to you. That gives honor and dignity to the visitant. And this is what our Lord Jesus is saying. He's not here because he has to be here, because he couldn't find something else to do, because he couldn't book another appointment. No, he was here because he wanted to be here. He came into this world to save sinners. No one takes his life from him, he says, but I lay it down of my own accord. That's the great love that the Lord Jesus has, that the Son of Man has for his people. He comes of His own accord, leaving the glory of heaven into this world, knowing everything that it would mean for Him, the misunderstanding, the abuse, the ridicule, the scorn, the forsakenness. Our Lord Jesus came into the world. That's what 
the Son of Man did. Well, why did the Son of Man come into this world? You can see why this is such a a wonderful text to memorize and to meditate on. It's so logical. Why did the Son of Man come into this world? Well, He came first to serve. Well, it's not the way it's actually stated. It's first stated negatively. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And it almost has to be that way. Because if you were to read, for even the Son of Man came into this world to serve, it would be so jarring for you, because it just doesn't really make sense. The Son of Man, the exalted one, the one who has divine dignity, the one to whom all the nations have been given so that they might worship him, that Son of Man came to serve? It would affect our sensibility. So, so the Lord Jesus understands that. He, he actually puts it negatively first because we would expect that he came, comes to be served. That makes all the sense of the world. He's the king after all. But Jesus highlights that he didn't come into this world to be served. I mean, even when we have visitors, you invite people over to show hospitality as the Word of God calls you to do. And uh, they say to you, is there anything we can bring? And you say, no, no, we want to serve you uh, this evening. So just come as you are. And then they eat the meal with you, and you enjoy fellowship and refreshment together. And then after the meal, they, they stand up, and they start gathering the dishes and taking them into the dishwasher. And you say, no, no, don't, please don't do that for us. We want to serve you. You came here not to serve, but to be served. Well, if that's true about our fellow believers, how much more ought to be true about the Lord Jesus Christ, that that He would come into this world in order that we might serve Him and give ourselves without reservation for His glory and praise? Well, Jesus understands that it would be too much for us at first glance to think of Him coming into this world to serve us. So he gives us the negative first, not to be served as you would expect, but rather to serve. He comes not for himself, but he comes for his own. He comes not to be blessed, but to bless us. He comes for our needs in order to be of help to his own people. It's incredible. It's so counterintuitive, but it is gospel logic. This is what the Word of God always says. This is what is so astonishing about salvation. It just doesn't make sense in in all the world that, that the great King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one to whom all majesty belongs, should come to this world to serve us? How do you wrap your mind around that? I mean, you know, when, uh, when our Lord Jesus in the Last Supper in John 13, when he stood up from his place and when he laid aside his outer garments and took a towel and tied it around his waist and then went around to his disciples washing his feet. I mean, Peter shouldn't have said this, but you understand why he said, Lord, do you wash my feet? Actually saying, what are you doing? There's something odd here. 
And then Jesus says, well, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And, and Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And I just said, Peter ought not to have spoken with such proud arrogance against the Lord Jesus, telling the king of glory what he should and should not do or would and would not do. But you get why he does, don't you? Because it doesn't make sense that, that the servants should be served by the master. It should be the other way around. Peter and all the other disciples, they should have, should have gone up from the table, laid, out their, laid off their outer garments, put on a towel, the, 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 the uniform of a servant. They should have washed the Lord Jesus' feet. But in gospel logic, it's the other way around, that the Son of Man, the High and Holy One, He came of His own volition, Knowing all that he knew, he came to serve. But there's another reason why he came. You can see it with the other, infinitive. So that's a a verb with the two in front. So he came not to be served. He came to serve. And he came to give his life as a ransom for many. When the Lord Jesus speaks about ransom, it's evident that there is some sort of debt that the many have. And as you read through the Scriptures, you know what that debt is. Our Lord Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So we are indebted to God. We owe Him because of our sin and rebellion. Our sins weigh heavy upon us. We are in bondage to the wrath and the curse of God because of our sin. That's what we deserve. That's why we need ransoming. And there's just no way that you could ransom yourself. I mean, what are you going to give so that the eternity of God's judgment is lifted from you? You could give all your wealth, but what's that? It's a pittance. You could give your own life, but that's nothing. That won't do it either. This past week, I re-listened to the story of uh, Brad Booser and his mission work in, uh, among uh, the natives of Papua New Guinea, uh, the Itedi people, and they had understood that their sin caused a debt, and that the debt could only be paid through the shedding of blood. And so they said to Brad Booser, you know, if, if it's blood that is needed, that's no problem. When, when someone dies, we will lay them in the grave, and then we'll cut ourselves and we'll squirt blood on them. And uh, Brad says, it's not just blood that's going to be necessary. It is required that it be human blood, but, but your blood is so filthy and stained and polluted by sin because of your rampant wickedness and your godlessness that your blood could never ransom your soul from God. It needed to be the blood of the sinless Son of God, the sinless Son of Man. It needed to be man because there could be no blood if there were no man. I mean, Jesus took upon Himself our humanity, our flesh and blood, so that He could be our Savior. 
But it wasn't sufficient that he be man. Even perfect man would be insufficient to ransom your soul for God. It had to be the God-man to ransom you for God. Because the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ was necessary to be the Savior of humans. But the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ was necessary to give his ransoming sacrifice the infinite power needed to thoroughly deliver his people from their sins. And so in order for Jesus to ransom us, he had to give himself. He had to take upon himself the sins of his people as if they were his own. And he goes to the cross not just as a private individual, but he goes to the cross as a public figure, as a representative figure. As we learned, he goes as our federal head, taking our sins, representing us before God, bearing the judgment that our sins deserve, taking upon himself the curse of God that we deserve because of our rebellion. And by his death, he has fully paid the debt that we owe by his sacrificial atoning sacrifice. He has ransomed us for God. And so by his death, he has released us from our sins. His payment has been our emancipation. What he has given in his death has made us alive. All has been done by the Lord Jesus Christ. He came into this world to give his life, the totality of it. He died on the cross to give his life as a ransom for many. Not for all, notice, but for many. For all those whom the Father from before the foundation of the world had chosen in love to be his own, he gave the elect to his Son, Jesus Christ. He says, be the ransom for these people. Release them from their bondage. Deliver them from their incarceration. Free them from their captivity. Take from them the wrath that they deserve. And Jesus came into this world. The Son of Man came into this world to give himself for that very purpose as a ransom for his people. For even the Son of Man, the High and Holy One, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, what do you do with this? Well, you marvel. That's what you do with it. You, you stand astonished. You never tire of the both the simplicity and the profundity of it. You roll it over in your mouth. You regurgitate it. You, you think it through. You ponder it. You, and then you worship. I mean, it's no wonder that the psalmist says in Psalm 146, I will bless the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I have been. Well, of course you would. If you knew what Jesus had done, if you knew what the Son of Man had done for sinners, of course you would worship Him and marvel at the mystery of our redemption. 
Oh, it's a sad thing if, uh, if you can hear about the Lord Jesus or read about the Lord Jesus or think about the Lord Jesus and, and be unmoved and say, wow, isn't that interesting? I didn't know that. It's thoroughly out of keeping with the sublime character of our redemption. You marvel at the Lord Jesus. And then you mimic the Lord Jesus. You might have noticed in the reading that uh, there's a story that comes before the verse, and then there's a story that comes after the verse. As I mentioned, verse 45 is kind of a hinge verse. And so in the story that comes before, you have these two sons of Zebedee, James and John, coming up to Jesus and, and say to him, just think of the, uh, uh, the pluck of these brothers. They, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. I mean, they had no conception of, of who this Jesus was. They, they, they thought that Jesus was just like one of them, or perhaps even a little bit lower than them. They certainly hadn't grasped that, that Jesus was the Son of Man to whom uh, all kingdom's power and glory had been given, or they would never have spoken to him in this way. And then they ask him, Jesus, we want you to grant to us to sit at your right hand and on your left uh, in your glory. We want a position of honor, prestige, far above all the other disciples. We want to be set, uh, sent, settled as unique. Uh, uh, we want to be chosen for these precise privileges of sitting at your right and at your left in your glory. And uh, it's, a, it's a display of the Son's self-centeredness, as if they deserve that position above all the other disciples. That's why when the other ten heard of it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And uh, Jesus had to call them together and said, uh, brothers, listen, let me tell you the mystery of the kingdom, that the greatest one is the one who serves. The one who would be first must be the one who is the slave of all. For even the Son of Man, even the Son of Man, it did not come uh, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, so that's how we ought to live, in service to one another. And then the story that comes after is an illustration of this service. So Jesus is walking along the road, leaving Jericho, and Bartimaeus, blind beggar Bartimaeus, is standing there. And he hears that Jesus is coming. He begins to cry out, Jesus Christ, the Son of David, have mercy on me. And everyone tells him to be quiet. He's not interested in you. He doesn't care about your concerns. You're a nobody. You're blind and you're a beggar. And then Jesus stops. Who stops? Well, the Son of Man stops. The one who, who came into this world uh, to uh, serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man stops. And he calls Bartimaeus to himself, and, and then Jesus says to him, now, now this, is, this is it. This is so counterintuitive. Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do for you? He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, when I say that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, I don't want you to think that Jesus doesn't deserve to be served. Of course he does. He's 
the God-man, the creator of all things, the one by whom and for whom all things were made. Of course, you want to worship and serve him. In fact, this is the very thing we see with uh, blind Bartimaeus. Well, he's no longer blind. He's still Bartimaeus. But Jesus says to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately, Bartimaeus recovered his sight and followed Jesus on the way. That is, he mimicked Jesus. And that's what you're called to do, to serve one another. To think um, not how can people serve me. To, to ask the question not uh, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you, but to ask the question, what can I do for you? And you can ask that of your brothers and sisters, of your family members, of your, your, your other Christians that you know. How can I serve you? How can I pray for you? What can I do that would be a blessing for you? And the answers are legion. You can pray for them. You can write a card. You can send a note. You can bring a meal. You can stop them in the foyer and talk to them. You can walk by them and put your arm on their shoulder because you understand what they're going through. There's all kinds of ways that you can serve. But what you ought not to do is think about yourself because even the Son of Man did not do that. He thought about others. And our Lord Jesus calls us to be like that, to have the same mind that was in Christ, and to esteem others better than ourselves, to think more highly of others, to look after the interests of others rather than the interests of ourselves. And the applications of that are legion. There's all sorts of ways that you can serve your brothers and sisters. But you first need to be enamored with the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you think that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve me and to give his life as a payment for my sin, well, then you'll stop at nothing to serve others. Why would you? To be like the Lord Jesus is a wonderful thing. I said Friday in the wedding sermon that the best form of flattery is imitation. That's what I learned somewhere, but it's true. And the best way to worship the Son of Man, the one to whom the nations have been given for his worship, is to just be like him in serving one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. I didn't watch the coronation of our king a few weeks ago, but I read about it. And I read that the first spoken words in the service was, uh, were a greeting uh, by one of the children of the choir to the king. And this person said, Your Majesty, as children of the King of God, as children of the kingdom of God, we welcome you in the name of the King of Kings. To which the king responded, In his name, that is, in the name of the King of Kings, in his name, and after his example, I came not to be served, but to serve. Now, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing as you're welcomed into worship each Lord's Day to say, in the name of the Lord Jesus and after his example, I'm here today not to be served, but to serve. You'll never be able to give your life as a ransom for many. You can't even give your life as a ransom for yourself. 
nor do you need to. The Lord Jesus has paid it all. All to him we owe. But you can give your life in the service of others for the honor of the Son of Man, our Lord Jesus Christ. And may God, the Holy Spirit, give us grace to do so. Let's pray together. Our dear Father in heaven, we bless you that you sent your Son into this world. And we thank you that the Lord Jesus came into this world. That he came not for himself, but for the sake of his bride, for his brothers and sisters who had been given him from before the foundation of the world. We don't want to take it for granted. We confess that sometimes we're so nonplussed by what Christ has done. It doesn't grip us or move us. It's just old hat to us. And we lament that, our God. And we pray that you would revive and refresh us and give us joy unspeakable and full of glory. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.